This is an Area Code podcast. Significant name changes in history. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, the divine start of an ancient patriarchy, the significance of which is life-altering for many people today. Prince changed his name to a self-styled symbol, a clever middle finger to an abusive record industry. Facebook changed its name to Meta. Um, I don't really understand the significance of that and probably should care more than I do. It's a bad example. The point is, sometimes a name change is of life-altering significance, a change that resonates for generations. Here's how Millie Good, one half of today's featured artists, the Girls of the Golden West, describes her and her sister's decision to change their last name from Goad to Good. She says, My father's name was Goad, G-O-A-D. See, we changed that when we started singing. We went as Mildred and Dorothy Goad when we very first started. When we started getting mail, nobody could spell Goad. You know, they just didn't understand that name. It was unusual. So we would get letters like for gold or goat, you know, so we changed it to good. So that's why we changed our names to Millie and Dolly instead of Mildred and Dorothy. And then it's Millie and Dolly good the rest of our career then because of that spelling. Sometimes name changes are of life-altering significance. Sometimes you change your name just because people can't spell. Welcome to Wildwood Flower. Today we're talking about Dolly and Millie Good, the close harmony sister duo, the girls of the Golden West. Despite the myth that grew up around them, the girls of the Golden West did not start out from Texas, Muleshoe, Texas, as the story goes. No, Mildred Fern and Dorothy Laverne Goad were born in Mount Carmel, Illinois, Millie in April of 1913, and Dolly in December of 1915. Their father, Oscar Goad, tried several lines of work, but had trouble sticking to one. Early on, he was a farmer. Millie says, oh, he had over 200 acres of everything. What I mean, he would plant corn and all kinds of vegetables and tomatoes. He had a big tomato patch. We'd all get out there and pick tomatoes, you know, and then he'd take them into the place to sell them. He always had good crops, and then he had cows and horses. Their mother, Emma Job, was a musician with a repertoire of old-time songs, who sometimes performed in their Latter-day Saints church choir. A couple of notes here. Throughout the episode, I'll sometimes refer to the duo as the girls. Um, There's no infantilization intended here. I'm abbreviating their self-appellation, the girls of the Golden West. Some of the information from this episode comes from an interview transcript with Millie from 1978. And Millie isn't so interested in the details as perhaps the interviewer or you and I would like. Here's the bit, read as it is written, about her early music training. I wish I had the audio of this interview because I'd like to hear the nuance of Millie's contradictory reply to the question. The question is this, did you ever participate in the music, for example, in the choir? Millie replies, not really, yes I did. I had a natural God-given gift for harmony, and my mother did too. 
So I'd sit with my mother, and I would sing harmony, you know, and then I would sing in the choir a little bit at church and sing harmony, because it was just a thing that I would hear a note and would hear the harmony to it, you know. The interviewer then asks, but was there a formal choir that you sang in? Millie. We weren't specifically in the choir, no. Anyway, when Dolly was about... I was working in the store, and she was about 13 or 14, and Mom got her a guitar, and she got me a banjo. Okay, so Millie's answers are kind of all over the place in this interview, so I'll do the best I can to kind of parse the facts from recollections as much as it matters. We get that Millie and Dolly were around the choir, but not in the choir. I don't know, but the idea is that the girls got their musical training and many of their musical experiences through their mother and her Latter-day Saints church. Their father, mostly religiously unaffiliated, bought a restaurant and a department store. But despite being a, quote, brilliant man, according to Millie, he wasn't able to keep up with the demands. Millie says that he almost had a nervous breakdown and that he had to stay at home, necessitating the mother to be the primary breadwinner. Here's what Millie says. So my mother, she was always go get em, you know. I was real brilliant in school. I was sort of a little genius, but nothing was ever made of it. I graduated from 8th grade when I was 11 years old and went to high school in Mount Vernon when I was 11 years old. Well, to go from a country school into high school scares you to death, you know, anyway. So I wanted to quit. Not that I did bad. And my folks let me quit instead of putting me back in a grade which I should have been, like in the 8th grade or something. They let me quit. So therefore, that's where I went to school. And then my dad didn't do too well. So I stayed at home with my younger brother and sister and kept house for my mother. Did the laundry and all that stuff. And my mom went down to the store and took over the store. Dad had a brother living in East St. Louis, Illinois, that had done real well in the Minnesota Mining Company. I believe it was there in East St. Louis. So he got my dad a job there, to go there and work for this company. It was in East St. Louis that Millie, aged 14, and Dolly, aged 12, began their musical career in earnest. Millie had the gift of harmony, as she says, while Dolly had the expertise in guitar. Their mother also bought Millie a five-string banjo, but she never really took it up, claiming at the age of 14 she was too busy with working at a department store and at dating to practice. It doesn't seem that the Goad parents were pressuring their kids into music, although, as Millie says, her mother, while pregnant with Dolly, prayed that she would be born a great singer and, as proof of answered prayer, also claimed that Dolly could sing before she could talk. While Millie was working and dating, Dolly was singing with a neighbor girl named Margaret. Millie again. The neighbor girl had a guitar too, and they were the same age, and they sang together, and they auditioned first in a talent scout, you know, like they'd sing at a fair or something like that. And I think they won, you know, where they tried in the theater, I think it was. She sang with this girl, and then I got to singing with her because I could sing harmony. Even though I was working, I would sing harmony with her, you know, on the guitar. And then if she would yodel, I could yodel in harmony. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anything like it. I'd never heard it. I just did it, you know, because, as I said, I had a God-given talent for harmony. As for the yodeling, it seems that Dolly picked it up from listening to Gene Autry or Jimmy Rogers records, although the Goads didn't own any of these records themselves. Millie insists that they didn't copy anything that was popular at the time, that their style was pulled from a different ether, although there's no pinning down exactly what this ether is. Dolly was the more ambitious of the two, convincing her sister to audition for radio shows. Dolly, now 14, also aged herself up a few years. She said, In fact, I told everybody I was 18 for four years, and when I really was 18, nobody would believe me. The sisters landed a 15-minute show on the radio station WIL, but only for a short time. 
Soon the sisters caught wind of an audition happening for a spot on KMOX Radio in St. Louis. Here's how Millie tells it. And then what happened, my sister was going to go audition. We heard they were going to start a show over at KMOX in St. Louis, and I was working in St. Louis at one of the department stores. So she came over on the streetcar around noon, and then we walked over to KMOX, which was quite a walk. And we got there, and there was this fellow there that had come down from, I think he was from Chicago, and he was a sharp young man, and he was going to start this KMOX county fair, and when he heard Dolly and I sing, he said, you girls should be from Texas. He said, you sound like you should be from Texas. And the way we sang, you know, because we had picked up, like, Roundup Time in Texas and Home Sweet Home. We even wrote one of those, I think. Maybe that. Here's a taste of Dolly and Millie singing Home Sweet Home in Texas, which was indeed written by Millie and Dolly. There's spot way out in Texas Where the longhorn cattle roam There's spot way out in Texas That I call my home sweet home And I'm gonna be back someday To a land that's fair and bright And I'm gonna be back someday For I'm starting home got the gig, starting on a morning show and then eventually earning a spot on the Saturday Night County Fair show. It was at KMOX that the girls honed their image and settled on a name. Since most of their repertoire leaned westward, they took on the name Girls of the Golden West at the suggestion of County Fair showrunner Hank Richards. Again, here's how Millie tells it. He said, you should be from Texas. So we get a map of Texas, and we pick Muleshoe, because we thought that was the funniest name we'd ever heard, you know. So we picked Muleshoe, Texas to be from, which followed our career all the way through. We learned where Muleshoe was. It was up near the panhandle. If they'd tie us down, we'd say, well, our father left when we were young, you know, when we'd get to where we didn't know what was going on. But we got a letter from a mayor of Muleshoe and a letter from a girl that said she went to school with us in Muleshoe. You know how the publicity can do that. When not busy creating an airtight backstory, the girls began to dress the part of cowgirl singers from Muleshoe, Texas, in outfits that nodded to western wear, cowboy hats, boots, leather, rope, and fringe. Millie says, we made them out of velvet and put fringe on it, you know, like a curtain fringe at the bottom. Also saying, well, I don't know where we got the idea of them, the western split skirts, you know, and western because, as I said, we didn't really copy anybody. We were different. I guess from the west you think of, and we wore cowgirl boots, not right at first, but we did wear them, and the holster and the gun all from Gene Autry, you know, and whoever. We didn't really copy any specific people. We just did our own style. These guns she referenced were real guns, they just didn't have any bullets in them. There are some later pictures of the girls in their outfits, which look endearingly homemade, and each sister dons a wide belt with their first name studded across the belly. Not authentic cowboy wear, but still, you could see by their outfits that they were cowgirl singers. From KMOX, the girls land a gig with XER, the Border Blaster radio station we've already discussed in our Carter family, Lydia Mendoza, and Samantha Bumgarner episodes. Radio stations could skirt the U.S.'s broadcast regulations by placing their radio towers in Mexico, blasting signals much stronger than the U.S. government would allow. As a result, artists featured on stations like XER had an international audience that regional radio stations could not compete with. The girls auditioned for a Mr. Brown from International Oil Heating Company, who was the sponsor of the XER show. They passed the audition, but instead of being sent to Mexico or the Mexico border, Del Rio, Texas, they broadcast remotely from Milford and Abilene, Kansas. They stayed there for about a year when they caught wind of another group on XER, what Millie calls Hawaiian Boys, claiming to be making $350 per week. 
the sisters were only making $25 a week apiece. Remember, at this time, the sisters were still both teenagers without any parental supervision. Their parents both still in St. Louis. The girls, trying to remedy their situation, finagled a lunch at a diner with Mr. Brown, telling him that they knew about the Hawaiian musicians. He denied that they were earning that much, but agreed to double the girls' salary to $50 a week. Millie admits that they would have been happy with this amount, but principal and homesickness caused the girls to counter with a demand of $100 per week or the train fare home. Mr. Brown paid their train fare, and the girls returned to St. Louis. XER was not a total bust. In fact, the exposure it garnered the sisters led them to landing an agent in St. Louis, who connected them almost immediately with WLS in Chicago. This was 1933. Millie was 19 or 20, and Dolly was 17. After passing the audition, the girls didn't really change much about their act, except that Chicago and WLS afforded them tailors and costumers, meaning the girls didn't have to make their own outfits anymore. The girls began recording when they landed at WLS in 1933, and they recorded 64 sides between then and 1938, always only accompanied by Dolly on her guitar. Here's Millie talking about Dolly's accompaniment. She just played easy chords. She never did play a lot of fancy stuff, and that would blend with our singing. And that's the only accompaniment we ever had, really. I did play a mandolin a little bit, but I never did do it with the act, you know. Lazy, I guess. You could call it lazy or safe, you could call it pragmatic, or you could call it a solid groove that lasted nearly 20 years. The earliest recordings of the Girls of the Golden West are from July 1933, when they recorded started out from Texas, which we heard at the top of the episode, along with Colorado Blues, Hi-o, hi-o, night herding song. Hollow Bill, which shows off a bit of the sister's chops without being too flashy. When the girls of the Golden West joined WLS, they were joining the ranks of other women covered in this podcast, like Linda Parker, Lulu Bell, and the Three Little Maids. Millie clearly remembers Lulu Bell and the star power she possessed, and how she was able to connect with her fans by answering all of her fan mail. So much so that Millie says she was friends when everybody came there, you know. She'd be waving to them in the audience. When asked if the girls of the Golden West kept up with answering their fan mail, Millie says, not all of them, no. Some of them I would, but not a lot. Jean Autry was at the barn dance at this time and was a big influence on the girls, both in his yodeling style and in his costuming, though Millie maintains they never copied anybody. 
In December of 33, the girls went back to the recording studio, cutting classics like Lonely Cowgirl. I'm just a lonely cowgirl Wandering on to Rome I'm just a lonely cowgirl Far away from home Alone in a great big city Where streets so big and wide I wanna be away out west Out across that great divide And the cowgirl's dream Last night as I lay on the prairie And looked at the stars in the sky I wondered if ever a cowgirl Would drift to that sweet by and by Roll on, roll on, roll on, roll on, roll on, little doggies, roll on, roll on. You may remember from our Lucille Overstake episode that she wrote songs that were recorded by the Girls of the Golden West. In my mind, this is a big women-supporting-women moment, but when interviewed later in life, Millie doesn't seem to know Lucille Overstake enough to give her credit. In fact, she takes credit herself for Will There Be Any Yodeling in Heaven. Oh well. Will there be also recorded Lucille Overstake's Texas Moon. Texas Moon keeps shining down on that old pal of mine. Watch over him through the night. Be his guiding light. Texas Moon remind him that I'm coming back home soon. I'll never leave again. Texas Moon. In a discussion about copyrights, Millie had this to say about Texas Moon. I did finally have most all of them copyrighted. I've got them copyrighted after years, you know, but you can't collect on it unless you have them published. In fact, I was told several years ago that we had some owner's royalties there for us, like off-the-record Texas Moon. We own that. We didn't write it. Another girl wrote it, but we bought it from her outright, so we own that. So I have had that copyrighted. I heard we had some owner's royalty on it, but you think I could get it? Another girl wrote it. One source credits Lucille Overstake with writing, I want to be a real cowboy girl, but Millie says nobody knows who wrote that one, though many people think that she did. And I can see Larry swinging, and my heart is always happy at the rodeo. I want to be a real cowboy girl and wear all the buckles and straps and know how it feels to wear spurs on my heels then strut about in my shaft I want to told a six-shooter to wear a belt that is four inches wide then ride like the deuce on a buckskin with a cowboy I love by my side. The themes of their songs, though existing mostly in fantasy and nostalgia, were feminist in that they put the cowgirl in the same scenarios of work, love, play, and rest as the cowboys of western songs. Of course, being a part of the barn dance expanded the girls' musical horizons, even if it didn't show in their music. They were exposed, of course, to the music of other acts. 
They were given songs by W. Ellis producers, and they did their own listening on the radio. When asked by W. Ellis's Standby magazine who their favorite radio stars were in 1936, Millie said Bing Crosby. I'm an old cow hand and I come down from the Rio Grande. And I learned to ride, 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 for I learned to stand. I'm a riding fool who is up to date. I know every trail in the Lone Star State. Cause I ride the range in the Ford V8. Oh, And comedian Bob Bazooka Burns. Now here it was at that party. The place was full of people. And do you think he took one of them chairs that was sitting around the edge of the parlor? No, sir, he plunked himself down in a chair right in the middle of the parlor. And there he sat, you know, with his trousers pulled up with one red sock and one green one. And one of them society ladies sat there and stared at him through her lorgnettes for a long time at them socks. And she says, my, that's a novel pair of socks you have on, one red one and one green one. And he says, yes, ma'am, and I got another pair at home just like them. <laughs> For Dolly, it's George Burns and Gracie Allen. Gracie, maybe you can settle it. Ken and I have been talking about mustaches. Yes, uh, Gracie, what do you think about raising a mustache? Well, Ken, I've never given it much thought on the kind of my skin is too tender. <laughs> well, here we go again. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> get that in here. No, I mean, Gracie, what would you think about me growing a mustache on my face? Well, if you're going to grow a mustache, that's the place to grow it. <laughs> Their favorite songs at this time were Nobody to Love for Millie. What good is the moon in its splendor? Or moon beams that shine from above? What good are soft lips so tender If you have nobody to love And roundup time in Cheyenne for Dolly. Here's the Girls of the Golden West version of that. The fences were lined up with people To see all the boys do their stuff We've talked in other episodes of the fact that the barn dance cast members were mostly in their 20s or younger, and that hookups and relationships were common. Both Millie and Dolly joined the ranks of 16 other female performers who married another member of the barn dance. Let's start with Dolly, and let's hear the story as told by WLS's Standby magazine. On a wintry afternoon, members of a barn dance road show were hurrying to play a theater date in a small Indiana town. Tex Atchison, southpaw fiddler of the Prairie Ramblers, was driving his car along the highway at 50 miles per hour. Beside him sat Dolly Good, one of the girls of the Golden West. As they rounded a curve, Dolly, in leaning on the door handle, released the catch. She was catapulted half out of the car. Only quick thinking and Tex's stout muscles saved Dolly's life. With his left hand, Tex steered the careening car. With his right hand, he seized Dolly by the belt of her riding breeches. Holding her with her hands almost dragging along the pavement, Tex managed to bring the car to a halt. Dolly was uninjured. It seemed obvious that Dolly realized then and there that she couldn't get along without this boy Tex. On March 6th, they were married in Galesburg, Illinois. This is 1934, and Dolly was 19. We heard some of Tex's music in our Jenny Lou Carson, Lucille Overstake episode, both as part of the Prairie Ramblers and as part of the Sweet Violet Boys. Another standby article adds some color to the wedding saying that Tex dressed in traditional groom attire while Dolly walked down the aisle in her Girls of the Golden West cowgirl costume. I'd love to see a picture of that if anybody has it. Millie also found a husband at the barn dance, announcer Bill McCluskey. Here's how Standby wrote up their early romance. Of all the experiences Bill has had, there's only one that he'll probably remember longer than any other. 
The girls of the Golden West were appearing on the same show with him. The better Bill knew Millie, the better he liked her, but Millie seemed cold and distant at first. She finally relented a bit and would occasionally eat lunch with Bill. As time went on, they found that they had much in common and enjoyed being together. Others on the show observed the budding romance. Things were going smoothly and Bill was happy. Then one day, a telegram signed, the Artist Bureau, came to Bill. It ordered him to report to Chicago and prepare to accompany another barn dance unit going east for an extended engagement. The next few days were blue ones for Bill. The members of the crew discussed Bill's departure and gave him a farewell party on the last show. In dejected tones, Bill told how much he regretted leaving these boys and girls with whom he worked. Then the conspirators broke down and confessed. Even Millie was in on the fun. The audience enjoyed the joke as much as the boys and girls on the show. As for Bill, he was elated. Kind of a cold prank, but okay. Here's a less polished account of Bill and Millie's early years from a 1978 interview with Millie, where Millie and the interviewer were talking about her family's Latter-day Saints faith. She says, My whole family was active in that, and some of them still are. See, then I married Bill. In fact, I was engaged to a Catholic guy, and he was going to give up the church. Now this is rambling a little bit. But anyhow, then I met Bill when we were on the WLS shows, and we would eat together and go out for walks between shows, and he would stop in a church and pray. Well, I was impressed by that, because we didn't do that kind of stuff, you know. It was just natural with him, because he had been raised Catholic all his life. The interviewer says, just part of everyday life, Millie says, yes, and over from Scotland, so he didn't think anything about it. He wasn't trying to impress me or anything, but I was impressed by that, because we would stop at a church and he'd kneel down and pray. So when we finally decided to get married, I didn't even think to tell him, to suggest that he give up his religion, because it was always too strong with him. Bill and Millie married just one month after Dolly and Tex, in April of 1934. In just over two years' time, Bill and Millie had two children. Of course, Standby went out of its way to stress the domestic life of their female stars. Even having one article on Millie entitled, Housekeeping, says Millie, is fun. Another article interviews Bill, who's quoted as saying, She's a mighty good cook, too, and she's not letting her radio career interfere with being a wife and mother. The girls of the Golden West were only at the barn dance for 18 months, but they became listener favorites. In one 1938 poll of all-time listener favorite artists, the girls of the Golden West ranked in the top 11. Standby would not release the order of the top 11, so we don't know where they ranked on that list. Here's two artifacts from the barn dance that I would love to see. If anybody out there knows if either of these items exist, please get in touch. I'm not trying to buy them or anything, I'm just curious about them. First, there was a linen scarf made and advertised by Pinex Cough Syrup that featured the Girls of the Golden West, Red Foley, and Lily Mae Ledford. Here's the advertising copy. This beautiful, pure linen radio scarf is brand new, entirely different, a prize you cannot buy at any price. The pictures of all the Pine Mountain merrymakers are stamped on this most unusual scarf, and what's more, under each picture is the personal autograph of your radio favorite. With this beautiful linen scarf, you also get three skeins of colored thread to embroider the autograph outlines. What a beautiful and welcomed Christmas present this scarf will make, but our supply is limited, so get yours at once. The second artifact is a marionette. Someone created a whole marionette show of the barn dance, with 20 marionettes in total, including Patsy Montana, Red Foley, Girls of the Golden West, Pat Buttram, Lulu Bell and Scotty, and more. The marionettes were about three and a half feet tall, and the puppeteers used them for a touring act. I think these would be fun to see. Maybe they're in a museum somewhere. If you have any information, let me know. For the barn dance's 13th anniversary, Stand By had listeners create their ideal national barn dance show. Any barn dance artist from any time singing any one of their songs. The Girls of the Golden West made it on the list with Jimmy Davis's Beautiful Texas. I thought it would be fun to make a Spotify playlist of the ideal national barn dance show based on this list, but only three of them are on Spotify, so I didn't think it was worth it. 
Um, but if you don't mind, I'll list the 13 songs here with snippets of the eight that I could find on the internet. Hoosier Sodbusters, Climbing Up the Golden Stairs, Girls of the Golden West, Beautiful Texas. To beautiful, beautiful Texas, where the beautiful blue bonnets grow. We're proud of our forefathers who fought at the Alamo. You can live on the plains or the mountains, or down where the sea breezes blow. And you still live in beautiful Texas, the most beautiful. Arky, the Arkansas woodchopper, sweet Evelina. Dear Evelina, sweet Evelina, my love for thee shall never, never die. Dear Evelina, oh sweet Evelina, my love for thee shall never, never die. Who's your hot shots? Meet me by the ice house, Lizzie. Christine, Chime Bells, The Hilltoppers, Hula March, Red Foley, Old Shep. When I was a lad and old Shep was a pup, o'er hills and meadows we'd stray. Just a boy and his dog, we were both full of fun. We grew up together that way. Otto's Novolodians, When the Pussy Willow Whispers to the Catnip, Dezurich Sisters, Alpine Yodel, Lily May, Flower Blooming in the Wildwood. You're a flower that's blooming in the wildwood. Flower that is blooming there for me. Sweeter than the morning dew. Lulu Bell and Scotty, Nobody's Business. Well, the old folks talk till they drive me crazy. They say Scotty's trifling lazy. Nobody's business for our own. The gals all say that Lulu is flirting, but if she is, there's one thing certain. It's nobody's business for our own. Nobody's business, nobody's business, nobody's business what we do, do, do. Nobody's business, nobody's business, nobody's business but our own. The Prairie Ramblers and Patsy Montana, I want to be a cowboy's sweetheart. I want to be a cowboy's sweetheart. I want to learn to rope and to ride. I want to ride o'er the plains and the desert Out west of the great divide I want to hear the coyotes howling While the sun sinks in the west I want to be a cowboy sweetheart That's the life that I love And Henry Burr, I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen. After about 18 months at the barn dance, opportunities opened up for them in New York with NBC Radio. I can't tell if it was because of the Girls Act or because of Texas Prairie Ramblers Act, 
But both Millie and Dolly and their husbands moved to New York for several months, appearing occasionally on Rudy Valley's radio hour. Here's how Millie remembers it. Well, Dolly was pregnant and had a new baby, and they went to New York, and I was pregnant for the first time. But I went out to visit them in New York, and our manager, Ellsworth, had contacted somebody at NBC about us. So we went over there, and Mrs. Rockefeller King was listening to us, and we auditioned on NBC. I guess it was on NBC. So Mrs. Rockefeller King, she just flipped over us, you know, and she wanted us to go right over and audition for the Rudy Valley Show, which we did. Went with her over to audition for Rudy Valley Show. He hired us immediately, changed his script, and put us on that night or the next day on his, you know, when he had the hour show or whatever it was, Rudy Valley, and we were on his show. Then she wanted us to sign up with her and come back out there, and she would put us in the movies and everything else. We had an opportunity to go in the movies. A couple of them wouldn't take it, but anyhow, I was pregnant. They returned to Chicago in the barn dance in 1935 and began appearing on a show sponsored by Pinex Cough Syrup with Red Foley and Lily Mae Ledford. Again, that scarf. When John Lair started his Renfro Valley Barn Dance on WLW in Cincinnati in 1937, the girls were part of the WLS crew that moved with him. It helped that Millie's husband, Bill, got work at WLW as a station promoter. Tex and Dolly's marriage troubles perhaps also made the move easier, or necessary. I don't have the details, but they would eventually divorce, and Tex would go on to pursue a Hollywood movie career for a bit. When Lair moved the show to Renfro Valley, Kentucky, Dolly and Millie weren't having it, opting to stay in Cincinnati at WLW, which was the station that started the Boone Country Jamboree in 1938, also featuring Hank Penny, Curly Fox, and Texas Ruby, and for a short time, Lulu Bell and Scotty. The Boone Country Jamboree eventually turned into the Midwestern Hayride, which I'm sure we'll see again in future episodes. In 1938, the Girls of the Golden West, as we have come to know them, recorded their last sides, including Roman and the Gloman. Now last night after stroll and I got home at half past nine. Sitting at the kitchen fire, I asked her to be mine. When from us I got up and danced the healing flame. I just sit at the jewelers and from night we rain. Roman in the Gloman on the bonny banks of tide. Roman in the Gloman with my lassie by my side. When the sun has gone to rest, at the time that we love best. Oh, it's lovely Roman in the Gloman. I love her just the same. I love her, yes, I love her just the same. I know although she has disgraced my name, she's gone with another. But she's still my baby's mother And I love her, yes, I love her just the same Ragtime Cowboy Joe Out in Arizona where the bad men are Nothing there to guide you but an evening star Roughest, toughest man by far is Ragtime Cowboy Joe You always sing, you always sing rag music to the Cadillac swing That swing back and forth in saddle on a horse On a horse that swing stays gated And you ought to hear the meter on the roar of his feet How they run, how they run When they hear that fellow's gun Because the western folks all know He's a high-falutin' root and tooth Son of a gun from Arizona Ragtime Cowboy Joe the girls stayed on the Midwestern hayride into the 50s, taking a four-year break in 1942 for Millie to concentrate on her family. They reunite in 1946, where they keep the act together until the early 1950s, when Millie eventually retires, again citing attention to family. Dolly continued on with a variety of radio gigs after Millie retired, doing solo work and hosting a children's show, among other things. Dolly also remarries in Cincinnati. Here's Millie and Bill talking about their last days at WLW. So we were off for a while, and then I had a baby. 
Dolly and her daughter went over and did a kitty show on WKRC here in Cincinnati that became quite popular. She had this guy that's still doing comedy on kids' shows. But they would have liked for me to come over there, but I never did go over, because Bill was still working at WLW, and I just didn't go over. Then they wanted us to come back to WLW, and we didn't go back. Seems like I'm... What am I saying, Bill? We were let go for a while at WLW when the Dezurek sisters came up there. Bill says, I don't remember that. You quit there in 1949. Millie says, Why did we quit? Bill, You were pregnant, I believe. Millie, Well, maybe that's what it was. I was pregnant or something. Anyway, I decided I thought I would quit. Millie says that she mentored the Johnson sisters who were coming up at WLW at the time. Leona Johnson would go on to marry Chet Atkins, and her sister Lois Johnson would have a solo career and duet with notable country music names such as Hank Williams Jr. I thought I loved another, not you. and Millie made a slight comeback in the 1960s, recording six full-length records with Blue Bonnet Records out of Fort Worth, Texas. Here's Millie talking about this. It was because people were wanting our records and they wanted us to copy what we had done before, that we had recorded, you know, in the 30s, to do, which we did, practically tried to do, you know, like we did. Our voices might be a little lower than they was earlier, you know, but we did those. Those were the Blue Bonnet records from Fort Worth, Texas, albums. We made six albums. I think it was six or seven. Yo-ho, 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 way out on the Santa Fe Trail. Say part of your side of the schooner, way out on the Santa Fe Trail. They made it by Monday, our schooner, with water cake tied on the tail. There was Pappy and Ma on the mule seat, and somewhere along by the way, a little-headed gal on a pinto, just jangling for old Santa Fe. Yo-ho, yo-ho, yo-ho. These records do not cover new ground, but it was never about innovation or pushing new boundaries for the girls of the Golden West. It was about doing a thing as well as anyone possibly could. We've heard a bit about the influence of the Girls of the Golden West on the Johnson sisters, but their influence stretches much further. For one thing, Patsy Montana was a huge admirer, and the girls are directly responsible for Patsy Montana joining WLS. I'll tell the whole story in the Patsy Montana episode, but I'll just say that if it weren't for the Girls of the Golden West, Patsy Montana probably would not have been the first million-selling female country artist. They also invited the Flannery sisters to audition for the barn dance, and so can claim some responsibility for their career. They likely were profound influences on a young Skeeter Davis and Betty Jack Davis, who performed as the Davis sisters for a short time, though they weren't related. They were living and absorbing music in the Cincinnati area at the time the girls of the Golden West were on their way out. I've forgotten more than you. of the Golden West were the first close harmony sister duo on country radio, and soon other barn dances across the nation needed to have a similar act. In this podcast, we haven't really talked about the international spread of country music, but the Girls of the Golden West's records were reissued in Australia and were carefully studied by early Australian country music stars Shirley Toms. Golden wattle grows 
Holmes. He taught me how to ride my pony and make a lariat wine and whirl. For daddy was the Odolan cowboy, that's why I'm the Odolan cowgirl. Hoping each of these women will get a Wildwood Flower episode at some point. Other areas of influence. Pee Wee King named his group the Golden West Cowboys after the girls of the Golden West. You keep me waiting till it's getting aggravating. You're the slow pole. I wait and worry, but you never seem to hurry. You're the slow In more recent times, and a bit shocking to me, iconic BBC radio DJ John Peel was a huge fan of the Girls of the Golden West. Here's a question which I'm sure has been bothering you as much as it's been bothering me. Will there be any yodlers in heaven? Dolly passes away in 1967. Millie would live to 80, passing away in 1993. Thanks for listening. I didn't intend to have such a long stretch between episodes, but that's just how it happened. My life has gotten a bit busier and I'm more distracted these days. I don't want the quality of these episodes to suffer. So I'm sacrificing the frequency of the episodes. I'm hoping for an every other week release schedule from here on out to finish the season, but no promises. I have a great artist submission for the Lily Mae Ledford episode, which I'm excited for you to hear. If you're a musician and you want to submit a cover of your own of one of the artists from this season or a previous season, please do. I'll put it on the podcast. Just get in touch with me through email at wildwoodflowerpod at gmail or by Instagram at wildwoodflowerpod. One last thing, Spotify now has a feature where you can rate podcasts. If you would, please rate this podcast and tell your friends about it. The next episode is going to be a big one, Patsy Montana. See you then. Lady, lady.